The Ram Dama's Kingdom by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 13, I am who I am. The temperature in the basin fields could reach well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The workers wore very light shirts and pants, as well as wide-brimmed straw-like hats. Depending on the location, the fields could extend from very small plots to amazing spreads covering miles. Broken by tree and wind barriers, and interlaced with massive stone factories, the field in Sector 25 moved upward from the flatlands. Rows and rows of wide variety of crops were terraced up the hillside. McGee, on his hands and knees, looked upward. The Zomes considered any form of machinery in the fields to be out of order, preferring human toil to progress. He pulled the long green weeds out of the ground between the corn stalks. His hands had toughened over the week, and so had his resolve. Although he remained silent about the Ram Dhamma, he vowed to kill him. His thoughts brewed inside as the sun beat down on his back, and the heat brought back the desert experiences. For the first time in his life, McGee was feeling things deeply, the quest for riches having been forced from his soul. He could hear Zomes barking out commands in the distance. They always seemed to be around, everywhere. Then Daka, her hair tucked under her hat, caught his eye as she looked down the crop-lined pathway. She checked for the Zomes and then ran down to him. Daka! Hello, McGee. Only another hour, she said as she took a small pouch from her pocket. More sugar beads, exclaimed McGee. She popped out one of the red beads into his mouth. If the Zomes knew we had these, they won't know. Have you changed your mind about tomorrow? Last time you backed out at the last minute. I will go to the rest area with you tomorrow, as she put another bead in his mouth. Good, good, she gleamed. Rest day only comes once every ten days. I promise, he said, holding her wrist as a zome appeared at the end of the row. Very quickly they began to pull up more of the weeds. We will tolerate no talking, yelled the red zome. McGee watched him move out of sight. Then he turned to Daka. I hate those shh, she said, putting her finger over his mouth. McGee, angered by the inability to do anything, increased his own pace, ripping the weeds out of the ground like a well-oiled machine. For the moment, he could forget the insane system under the eye of the living machines and the perpetual human toil. Everyone in every job knew when the workday had ended. A long, wailing siren, as if they were under a bombing blitz, sounded from one end of the basin to another. The workers reacted instantly, moving in one solid mass onto the roadways. Daka and McGee walked out of the corn stalks and over to the towering gray factory. Workers were already coming down the factory rampway. Aaron would appear momentarily. Aaron, still at his machine, punched out plastic containers. He wanted to assure himself a high production level, but the Zomes were not impressed. Several of them hurried down the line and pulled him away from the machine. Are you deaf? I was just finishing up the last group. I think you'd be happy about that, he said as he grabbed his vest. He looked back several times as they moved toward the ramp. Their behavior made no sense. He joined the other workers, moving toward the ground. The rampway corridor, like the factory itself, 
allowed no outside light to pass to the interior. When he reached the outside opening, the sun hit his eyes for the first time in 10 hours. Ahead, he could see Daka standing next to McGee and waving at him. He smiled as he moved toward them, but before he reached them, Kasten, the short man with the beard, came running over to him. Sunset, he said, looking into Aaron's eyes. Aaron nodded and left. The sector leader moved over to his sister and friend. That man, said McGee, looking at him leaving. Kasten, very interesting. Hello, McGee, Daka. What do you find interesting, McGee? He asked as they moved through the crowd toward the roadway between the fields. I heard him say, sunset, said McGee. Absolutely, the sun will indeed set in half an hour. Don't play coy, Aaron. I've heard that word used before. If you have heard that word used before, you will keep your silence. There is to be an insurgency meeting. I want to go, said McGee. Not a point for discussion here, McGee. He answered sternly, and as more zones gathered ahead, we will talk about it later. McGee never made it to the insurgency meeting, and the next day he sat with Dhaka on an old cloth spread over the rest area concrete. Once again, he stared across the basin. Dhaka seemed to sense his anxiety and seemed determined to stop it. Hey, she said, pulling off his shirt cuff. I'm just still upset. I want to go to that meeting, he said as he looked at the box loaded with food. Apples and pears are grown way down in the 49th sector. How did you... Never mind. You must just enjoy it, McGee. But the food supplies are so scarce. You eat, she said, putting the apple into his mouth. All right, all right, he laughed as he bit into the apple. Then she reached out and held his hand. McGee slowly retracted his own hand. Why do you always do that? Why are you so afraid to be close to me? I have my reasons, he said as his face grew serious again. I just don't understand. Is it me? Am I not good enough? No, no, that's, that's not it. He knew exactly what the problem was. The anxiety was still strong. He had told Docker and Aaron everything except Annie's death. Her passing, even though it was several months behind him, plagued him. So many things had been left undone by her untimely death. Yet he knew he was attracted to Daka despite her young age. The base in life had made her much older in spirit, toughened her, but she remained youthfully innocent in many ways. Can I ask you one question? Of course, answered McGee as he looked over. Is it the insurgency thing? You keep pressuring Aaron about going to the meetings, and he refused to let you go last night. Yes, I want to go to the meetings, he said as he gazed over the crops near the oil fields. Listen, McGee, she said, holding his hand again. This time he did not let go. I don't want to see you hurt. Don't you think I worry about my brother all the time? Look what happened in the locust before. Suppose you didn't show up when you did. Aaron would be dead. It's dangerous, no doubt about that, he said as he stood. She followed him over to the edge of a small retaining wall. He folded his arms across his chest and watched the people playing Hooper below. Then if it isn't that that's bothering you, it's all those places you talked about. Those distant things. What does it all mean? You take it so seriously. Because it's all true, he said, looking across the basin to the mountains so far away. But what can you do about it? She asked. Then she reached out and put her arms around him. 
I only know what I feel, he said as he felt the warmth of her embrace. And what do you feel? He turned and she still held him. I have a great longing for the things that are no longer with me. I can understand that. I really can, McGee. But, but what's now is now. Nothing else matters. I can't accept that, he said, holding her arms. Not knowing all that I know and seeing what's taking place within this basin, I see the past vividly. It lives within me. I can see everything, and I can't stand by and do nothing. I have to become part of the insurgency and try to affect some sort of change here, especially if I can't get out of here. Then at least I'll try to change the way things are in this place. What about my feelings? She asked softly. He held her cheeks and drew her lips close to his. He sensed the sweetness and the love. But the past, like the rising water in the desert, washed over his perceptions. He could see Annie out of the water, dead. No, he said, pushing Daka back. What is it, McGee? She shouted as he ran across the concrete and down the terrace, disrupting one of the Hooper games. McGee, what did I do? Staring at the ground, she moved back to the cloth. The dark, complex mystery surrounding McGee prevented her from knowing the reasons why he had run from her. She had convinced herself that he really did not like her and was just being gracious. But perhaps the truth was radically different. Aaron left the sector, spending the rest of the day with his other friends. They sat around a large table on an outside patio near a row of distribution huts. The tingler was making the men giddy. These men were Aaron's oldest friends, people who had done nothing with the insurgency. He could just sit back, drink his tingler, and relax. Aaron used to throw things at the zones. He certainly did laughed another freckle-faced man. He had them looking and running in other directions. I was, I was only 10 years old, Gavel. Come on, laughed Aaron, taking a hearty gulp of Tingler. You talk as if it were yesterday. Did you ever get caught, Aaron? First of all, Gavel, he said as he pointed his finger at each of his friends. You were all there. What we did is we bounced an object off the factory walls. And then the Zones thought they were being attacked from above. They were yelling at the people in the field, he said loudly. A whole contingent was called out, said Gavel as he squinted. The Zones are so fearful of the slightest thing that's out of order, said Swanner. They should all be deactivated. You are becoming tingled, said Aaron. Or as my friend McGee says, drunk. Very old word, said Swanner. Very old indeed, replied Aaron, regretting he had brought up McGee's name. To his right, several zones had just entered the area. We must control ourselves. No, let's ask them over for some tingler, said Garvel. Aaron tried not to laugh, but the thought of zones drinking anything was too much to bear, and all the men laughed loudly. Quiet, quiet, said Aaron as the zones approached. They walked by the table. But Swanner stuck out his tongue once they were clearly by the table. Incredibly, the men contained their laughter until the zones were safely in the distance. Swanner, you're going to get us all sent to the pit, said Aaron. I'm not even convinced there is a pit, said the drunken gavel. Have we ever seen it? Has anyone ever come back from it? Discussions about the pit are better left unsaid, said Aaron. I'm forgetting more tingler, said Swanner. Good idea, replied Aaron as he stood. After I get rid of what's already inside of me. 
To make a purchase for a tingler or anything else, men and women had to run their identity strips over a large glowing circle atop a white cylinder at the end of the stacks. The purchase would be recorded to the zone banks and deducted from their rations. Aaron walked past the stacks and through the opening. He listened to the loud conversation to the rear. Two men washing their hands appeared to be arguing. Your friend speaks of things that cannot be true, Natchin. Earth, stars. Aaron almost turned away from the troth. He could not believe what he was hearing. I merely mentioned that my friend spoke of such things. I didn't say I believed them. Well, I should hope not. Nobody leaves the basin, my friend, said the other man as they headed out. Aaron quickly washed his hands and ran out the doorway. The two men were outside and had gone their separate ways. Running past the tables, Aaron approached the closest one with light skin and red hair. Excuse me, sir. I couldn't help overhear what you were saying in the trough room. Listen, friend, what I said, I wish I had never even brought up to him, he said as he started to walk away. Wait, wait, you spoke of what was his name? McGee? No, his name is Rail. Not important, friend. Rail? What does he look like? Really haven't got time for this. But Aaron grabbed his arm and the man stopped. You are certainly stronger than I. I am not going to hurt you, said Aaron as he released his grip. Good, such actions can be reported to the zones. Just have a few questions. This man, Rail, who is he? The man twisted his mouth around as he looked skyward. Something about a second father who rambled about strange ways, he said quickly. About what ways? Coming here, to the basin, from a far place. A far place? asked Aaron. Every word increased his anticipation. Through the stars, laughed the man. Can you believe that? Through the stars? He said he went through the stars. Where is this second father? He, he died long ago. I don't understand your interest. Are you a zone tucker? You listen to me, said Aaron, squeezing his arm again. You will tell me where he is. In Sector 52. But you have to cross through two zone points to get there. Can you take me there? It is risky, very risky. What's in it for me? Supplies. I will pay you in supplies. Ha <laughs> ha. I can always use supplies. We all can. Good. Then my friend and I will bring bread and canned meat. Offered Aaron. Very well. I will meet you on the far side of Sector 52's gates at the fourth hour. What is your name? Nachi. I will see you there. He said as he began to leave. If you are not there, Nachin, I will track you down. I will be there. He called back, just bring the supplies. Aaron and McGee, both carrying supplies, crossed through numerous back roads. They had traveled through several sectors, and the stone archway gates to Sector 52 were coming in sight. I wish you'd just tell me what's going on here, Aaron, cried McGee from behind. You will see when we get there. Are you finally letting me go to an insurgency meeting? No, just go along with the story I told you. You are visiting a friend, Notchin. He will be at the gates. Three zones stood next to a cylinder with a glowing top. 
Aaron walked ahead of McGee, setting down the supplies, and he stepped over to the zones. He extended his wrist over the circle. His name came into view on a screen within the stone arch, along with other information. You are many sectors away, said the zone nearest the screen. And you have passed through several other sectors. If you have all that information, said Aaron, you understand why I am here to visit my friend Natchen. He is on the other side of the gates, said the other zone. And this is the other man, McGee. I am McGee, he said, as the blue-eyed zone motioned him toward the cylinder. McGee set the food down and also extended his wrist. Your strip is in order, said the zone by the screen. Now both of you people have four hours to return to your sector. Do you understand that? We understand said Aaron, lifting the food in his hands. We understand, repeated McGee. Good, you may pass. Both men moved under the stone archway. There were a number of electrical transformers and hundreds of low-hanging wires on the other side. Aaron looked down the roadway. A man, probably Notchin, was standing next to a hut 50 yards away. I have located Rael. He is in his hut waiting said Notchin as he met them. This is my friend McGee. We have brought your supplies, said Aaron as he nodded to Notchin. I must warn you, Raul is very reluctant to speak to these things. I understand, said Aaron as he led them through the alleyway toward Raul's hut. Raul's dwelling was actually a part of a three-storied structure. They climbed the old wooden stairway and Notchin knocked on the door. A middle-aged man with curly steel gray hair looked out the window and then rushed to the door. Are you alone? He asked Notchin. Yes, we are alone. These other men I told you about. Come in, come in, he said as he passed through. Raoul looked down the stairs and out toward the road. Then he closed the door. We must be sure that the Zomas will not hear what I have to tell you. Aaron, what's going on here? Just wait, you'll see, cautioned Aaron as they sat down. Ever since I have known you, McGee, you have spoken to things that cannot possibly exist, things that are out of my realm of thinking. I have discounted what you told me only because it is so fantastic, but I've always considered you my friend. What does this have to do with what we're doing here? I think I can answer that question, said Raul as he stood before them. You know of Earth? asked McGee. But I knew a man who did, many years ago, he said as McGee looked over at Aaron and smiled. That man was my second father. Second father? asked McGee. Father of his father. But all the people who came with me, they were all dead, confessed McGee. This was long ago, said Rael. My second father's name was ha Harrison. Harrison? Not your typical basin name, said McGee. Harrison was dying. He was lapsing in and out of a coma for several days. I was with him when he told me of Earth. He said he was born there and arrived here when he was a mere child, very young. He arrived, stated Aaron. How did he arrive? From a barren desert, an unknown place, said Rael as McGee nodded. He had trouble remembering. The older people were becoming frightened. He remembered being among the stars. 
a room among the stars. Many people within the room. They all had trouble remembering. The older people were becoming frightened. Very, very frightened. They brought everyone into another area, a secure area. And the flight became turbulent, green, gases, and the inside of a sphere. With an amber lacing, said McGee. Yes, how did you know that? Ryle said, looking at Natchin. How does this man know of such things? How do you? McGee asked, pointing at Rael. Is this some clever means to make me feel better? I have never seen Rael before tonight, McGee. They were riding on colors, said Raoul, gesturing with his hands. Someone must have heard me babbling, said McGee, shaking his head. Harrison remembered how they came out of the clouds into the atmosphere. He remembers the desert, the desert. Nice try, Aaron, but you don't have to appease me, said the angry McGee. How did he get to the basin? I don't even know how I got here. Come on, Raoul, tell us. Tell us how he came to the basin. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm upsetting you. Perhaps we should just forget. No, answer his question, Rael, said Aaron. Yes, Rael, answer my question, said McGee. You won't believe this, but he remembers being brought under a mountain cliff. Very vast complex. Someone placed in, into a beam. A beam of sorts and transported him to the basin. I never saw any beings, confessed McGee, softly wanting to believe. The Zomes placed Harrison into the instruction. Later he was assigned a family, retaining his name, but he could never forget what he had experienced and where he came from. Time to get back to the hut, Aaron, he added as he walked toward the doorway. I assure you, said Raoul loudly, I have never met you, nor your friend until now. Your lack of trust angers me. He walked over to a small closet, opened a wooden trunk. Several minutes passed as he emptied the trunk. Finally, he emerged back into the room, carrying a white shroud. What is this? asked McGee, ready to leave. Raoul unwrapped the shroud. Inside was a folded blue uniform. He set the shroud on the table and opened up the uniform. It was the uniform of a child with a brilliant gold patch on the left shoulder. An embroidered ship moving through space sat atop words only a person from Earth would recognize. Colony ship number one, David Harrison. And there is this said Raoul as he unfolded an aging piece of paper. McGee walked back into the room and over to the uniform, holding it in his hands, and studied the patch. The colony ship was lost. No one ever really knew what happened to it. I have never mentioned it to anyone here. McGee, that uniform looks like your uniform, said Aaron. The ship, it did have animals and people, sent out to colonize some other solar system. I don't know which one. But there's no way you people could have known this. I am a truth teller, said Ryle. Harrison gave me this paper as he was dying. David Harrison, age four, one of 20 children ejected from colony ship one. 
January 25th, 2023 from the planet Earth. Below was a biological diagram of the human body with close-ups on the genetic structure and DNA, all the food intake systems. That ship was lost seven years ago. The press uncovered it, said McGee as he thought. How did this survive? You told me the Zomes put him into instruction. I'm sure they just didn't fold up this uniform and... No, no. Harrison was with a family for several days. They kept the uniform until he returned. Did you know this man, McGee? Asked Aaron. The date system is the same. Aaron, that was seven years. I didn't know this man. Then you must have met this man and used his stories. He died... 30 years ago. Thank you, Rael. He took McGee by the arm. They moved outside and they shut the door to Rael's hut. He held McGee by the shoulders. Then it's true. You are from another reality, a place outside the basin. Yes, that is what I have been trying to tell you. And the third predicator, leader of the religious group on Earth thousands of years ago, how did he get here? How can he have been here so long? I don't think he's human. I want answers too, Aaron, said McGee as they hurried down the stairs. When they reached the road, he turned to Aaron again. You listen to me, Aaron. I'm going to leave this basin. I'm going to find the Ramdama and find out what's happened here. You don't have to talk to him to know the suffering here. That's why I want to become a member of the insurgency. Insurgency can make a difference in this damn place. People must overthrow the kingdom and take control. We don't want to overthrow the kingdom. We just want a voice in production. The kingdom is a vice, Aaron. A vice that is squeezing the blood and sweat of the remaining humanity. You can't see it. You haven't had the freedom that I've had. Even though everyone here has been indoctrinated since day one, you still hunger for some type of control, for freedom. Humanity striving for freedom. Freedom I took so much for granted. Everyone did. We just lived day by day, taking simple things for granted. The ability to go where you want, when you want. Having your own children without state interference. Not some kingdom assigned structure. Just like they tell you everything else. What's best for you? Well, it's all wrong, he yelled. The damn zone machines are controlling life forms? Unfeeling, useless machines? And everyone is pinned in here? I'm going with you to your insurgency meeting. You can't stop me. And I'm not going to quit until I change things here. Even if I have to blow this place to stardust. Damned zone machines controlling life forms? Unfeeling, useless machines? And everyone pinned in here? I'm going with you to your insurgency meeting. You can't stop me. And I'm not going to quit until things change here, even if I have to blow this place to stardust. Aaron, stunned by his intensity, took a deep breath and looked upward. What McGee had just said seemed to touch him deeply. He nodded his head. He nodded his head. All right, you can come with me, he said, looking back toward the hut. But you mustn't mention any of this talk, this talk about colony ships and Earth. 
It would mean my position in the insurgency and probably your life. But I want answers. I want to know why the Ram Damar is here. I want to know how this place came into being. I know, my friend, he said as he held McGee's shoulders. Someday we will both find these answers, but let us move slowly forward on our journey. Our journey, repeated McGee. The two men hurried back toward the sector gates, and that they were indeed possible. McGee looked at his face. For the first time since he had known Aaron, his face reflected hope. Join us next week for another adventurous episode of the Ram Dama's Kingdom, The Oppressed Planet. Produced by Fitton Theater of the Word.